Right, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Uh, hosting, as always, my name's Dan, and I'm joined this evening by Paul. Good evening, Dan. And Calm. Evening. How are you both, gents? Yeah, all good, thanks. All good. Surviving, Dan, surviving. Well, that's what January is all about. Roll on the 31st. Um, well, with that being said, we've got a lot to get on with, so we will not waste time, we'll not procrastinate, we'll not say words that we don't need to. There's no time for messing around. We're just going to get straight on with it. Um, and Khan, thankfully, gets this joke. Um, if we kind of... I wasn't going to lead with this story, but one of the, the burning issues that we've talked about a few times finally came to a head a few weeks ago and Rafa Benitez was sacked as Everton manager. Uh, it was no real surprise when it happened. It had been coming. Um, but what I will say is that they are making a right porridge of the managerial search it reminds me a lot of how spurs went about it in the summer we'll offer it to this person we'll offer it to that person okay and then suddenly there's the the former porto manager who is already getting graffiti say him out and lampard in evertonians don't want him um they associate him with um keir Jurabchin, who they believe has too much of a say over everton the first the Blues are making a right mess of this already. And from me saying they've not got a chance of being relegated, if this goes wrong, they really have. So, yeah, Vitor, Vitor Pereira, who is the, the former Porto manager you're talking about, Dan, he, if you go back two searches, and, and that's the world that we live in with Everton, if you go back two managerial searches, he was interviewed with a view to offering him the job when they ended up getting Ancelotti in the in the December of whatever year that was, was December 2019, maybe. Um, he was the favourite at that point, had been interviewed, was, a, was about to be hired. And then all of a sudden it was like Ancelotti's interested and Everton kind of dumped him like a stone and he ended up going off to China somewhere, I think. And, and, and Everton went for Ancelotti. Um, it, it's surprising that his kind of, names reappeared this time i presume he wasn't considered in the summer because he was already in work i think i think he was at fenerbahce wasn't he so um probably wasn't available to them when they hired rafa but he seems to be back on the shortlist uh now obviously lampard's name has has been mentioned as well um and i don't know that i'd particularly fancy frank lampard if i was an everton manager if i'm if i was an everton fan sorry if i was completely honest but uh, but it does feel as though he's maybe the more popular choice among supporters, um, and and Pereira doesn't seem to have have got rave reviews. But I mean, the problem at Everton goes deeper than the manager. I think I've said this before. I I don't know what the club wants to be. I don't know what its direction is. I don't know where it's going. I don't know what its plan is to get there. And until you know those things, it's really difficult to identify the right manager, um, because. If your aim is to sort of coach up the players you've got now and try and be competitive with this squad, that's one sort of job. If what you want is a manager to kind of start again with a blank sheet of paper in the summer, that's a different job. If your only focus is on staying in the Premier League this year, that's a different job again. And I think until Everton answers some of the more fundamental questions about what is it trying to do as a football club, it really won't matter who's in the managerial chair. They'll keep going nowhere. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Um, I think we yeah we spoke about it before that you know the, about the, the 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 list and sort of revolving door of 
of managers that they've had um it's it's pretty much averaging one a year right and uh you know they're almost almost getting to, to sort of Watford levels who we, we might come on to later but um <laughs> that you know that also might I think it becomes a bit of a cycle because then that probably impacts the amount of people who are interested if they see a club that's directionless um despite the fact they they've, they've spent money or they've they have or, or had money um you know it, it's probably going to put off you know some managers which is why it, it might turn into a Spurs situation where people are looking at it and thinking well what's the point if I'm coming into a sort of broken club that doesn't seem to want to fix itself <laughs> why should I put myself through that if I'm going to be out on my ear in eight months time um which is, is why the, the pool of managers might be a bit smaller um but maybe where someone who's which is my, why they might be looking at, you know, out-of-work people like Lampard or, you know, the sort of turning club hero um, approach, which we've spoken about many times um, on this podcast and the, the varying success that has with, you know, in the form of Rooney. Um, but we don't know where they currently sit, um, you know, whether they'll whether they'll try and go back to one of them if it doesn't work out with Pereira or if the fans nix that deal, you know, where that leaves them. But it, 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 is, it is a mess, and I think... You know, Paul's right. Whoever comes in is going to have a, you know, a real, real job on the hands. Um, and, and you know, I must admit, I don't know if got feel if 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 Lampard is necessarily the right person who'd have the the stomach for that fight. I don't know. Um, well, he's got the stomach, can. <laughs> yeah, well, possibly. Um, I, I don't know if I see him as a as a fit at Everton, but you know, I I, I don't know. Um, we haven't seen a huge amount of him really beyond the two sort of relatively short spells at, you know, Derby and Chelsea. So may- maybe, you know, Everton not being, um, you know, with, with quite the status that Chelsea are at, maybe, maybe he'd have a, a better crack there. I don't know, but it's, you know, it's such a mishmash of a, of a squad as well. I think there's so much to do there. Um, you know, they really have over the last sort of four or five years just created a you know you mentioned they're making a porridge of hiring the manager they've made it a bit of a porridge of run the club for the last few years yeah yeah uh, so on the uh, we understand i think that lampard has been spoken to right lampard's been spoken to by everton Pereira obviously has been spoken to do we have any verification either way as to whether rooney's even a legitimate candidate as far as i've been told and what i've heard no um th- the one they wanted was was Martinez. But yeah. they can't they can't agree anything with the Belgian FA. Which is slightly bizarre because of course it was this owner who got rid of Martinez. Martinez was the manager that this owner, and for legal reasons I won't get into who is really the owner of Everton Football Club. Um <laughs> but but this owner was the person who got rid of Martinez, who was the in situ manager, you know, a year into into their reign as owner of the club. Now legitimately i think he'd finished 11th twice in a row that's not really where everton want to be so i can kind of see the argument but he'd finished fifth his first season in charge he'd also in thinking the period he'd been there made both semi-finals of the the two domestic cups and again it, it kind of comes to what's everton's objectives where they're trying to go but to go back to martinez now when they've cycled through people in the meantime would just be yet another sign that the ownership of the football club doesn't know what it's doing yeah, I, I was surprised to see um, his name there for 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 that reason. It just seems, yeah, it, it seems just like a lack of imagination almost, and a bit a bit 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 desperate to just go back to well, when was the last time we were vaguely good and stable? Oh, let's get let's go back to to that guy. But I feel like Everton have a bit of a pattern of doing that as well, 
with managers. Well, they hired Howard Kendall about 14 times, yeah. didn't they? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there we are. Um, but yeah, no, I think you're right, Dan. We should, uh, you know, we do. We are a fan of a, a guest on this on this podcast, and it, it does feel like we we probably need the uh, the perspective of a of an Evertonian. If uh, you know, Paul and I can referee if it gets a bit ugly between you. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I will only only pick sophisticated Evertonians. Yes, of course. Yeah, admitted that leaves me with little choice. But <laughs> yeah, and now now Dan. <laughs> yeah, now now indeed. Um, w- w- while you've mentioned the Watford situation, um, we'll we'll mention them quickly while we're on uh, replacement managers. I'm not at all surprised it's that Ranieri. It, it's bananas that they have, but. Um, but it was bananas that they hired him in the first place. Well, ex- ex- I mean. Exactly, it's just a, a complete mess. And this is what Watford do, you know. Like it, it's a, a surefire way to get yourself a nice little payoff. Well, um, what, what was that stat in the week about? You know, it, it's was it something like it's six, six Premier managers. League managers, six Premier League managers since they, they had a clean sheet in the Premier League, which is absolutely <laughs> crazy. But if, if we assume that, uh, like, I, I, I don't think I'd review the surprise about Claudio Ranieri, like, kind of like that Paddy Power advert a few years ago with the manager getting sacked at halftime. Um, that's what I expect Watford to do. Hodgson, I'm surprised that he has taken the job. I'm not surprised he was offered it. Good appointments. It was going to be a bad end to Roy Hodgson's career as they go down. Will he keep them up? So I I would start from from the perspective of if it was any other football club, I think any other football club in the Premier League appointing Roy Hodgson, I'd say, what on earth are you doing? The man's 74 years of age. He, he supposedly retired at the end of last season. Um, where are you going? But Watford only ever have a manager for six months anyway, so it doesn't matter that he's 74 years of age because <laughs> they're not intending on him being there in 12 months' time, in 18 months' time. Uh, they just want him to do a job now. It is a job he's done before. I don't think he's been relegated from the Premier League, um, you know, despite being in the scrap a few times as a manager. Blackburn um, fans will tell you otherwise, but... Well, exactly. They, they were certainly in trouble at the point that they sacked him, but I don't think he's ever been relegated. Um, you know, having done the job with Fulham and West Brom and Crystal Palace, who were, who were the sorts of clubs who were always going to be down and, down and around it at different times. So... You know, from that perspective, it it makes an element of of sense. Um, It feels like a bit of a desperation move, to be honest. Um, It feels like this would have been a more logical move at the point that they gave it to Claudio. Now, maybe Roy Hodgson said no at that point. I don't know. Um, They were clearly looking for an experienced pair of hands. They went the Ranieri road and then they've gone the Hodgson road. Um, Will he keep them up? I think he has a chance, but that's because I, I don't think much of the competition. Um, I think all four down there are not very good. And if you could relegate all four of them, I'd be in favour of it. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, uh, it, it probably makes as much sense as any move that Watford have, could have made at this point. But that doesn't necessarily mean I think it's a great move. No, but again, I mean, I don't. What, what what options would they have had that would have been a great move? You know, they're one again similar to to Everton. They're one of those clubs that they are kind of looked at as being a bit Mickey Mouse when it comes to managerial appointments. So it's hard to take well, them sure, seriously. I'm sure Paolo Fonseca would have put himself forward for the job, <laughs> and I'm sure he put himself forward for the Everton job because Paolo Fonseca puts himself forward for every Premier League job. Yeah, I think well, he's a bit of a tease though, Dan, because I don't think he actually wants any of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just wants to be linked with them and interviewed. Yeah. Perhaps he likes using his PowerPoint presentations. 
Yeah, he's trying to refine it for when the right job comes along. <laughs> Which ain't Watford. Um, there's no, no reason I can think of why he would take the job, apart from if you want a nice, easy payoff at the end of it. Uh, because <laughs> Watford sack all of the managers. Um, if we kind of move on then for managerial changes, because it feels like we have that conversation every week. Um, uh, one of the things that's caught my eye this week, and I know this is something that you're keen to talk about, Paul, is the um, change of the match postponement rules with regards to COVID. It's been a hot topic while we've been in our three week not really been able to do much. Yeah, in our hiatus. I mean, it's been a hot topic. It was a hot topic when we spoke before Christmas. Um, you know, it's been a hot topic for a few months as, as kind of we went into December and Omicron hit and, and cases started to go up and players started to be unavailable. Um, it, it definitely became a hot topic. I think the powers that be did get themselves into a pretty difficult position. Um they weren't clear, I think, as to what they really wanted the rules to apply to. We had that conversation, if you remember, uh, maybe our last podcast or last but one, saying it wasn't really clear which games were getting postponed and which weren't. So the Premier League decided it needed some some guardrails, some guidelines, and it came up with a 13 plus one, 13, ex, um, 13 senior players plus a goalkeeper as being the standard. Um, I don't think it was ever clear at that stage as to whether it wanted that um, to to mean it was only if you got those people because of COVID or if it was only because you got those people, whatever the reasons. Uh, but there were clearly games that were called off um, that I don't think necessarily would have been in, in normal situations. Um, you know, obviously they they had a difficult decision to make on the League Cup semi-final. I'm, I'm not sure what they came up with in the end was the best solution. Uh they then backed themselves into a corner, which which meant they had nowhere to go with the North London derby. Again, I don't think that game would have been called off had they not got themselves into this slightly unfortunate position with the guidelines. Um, the rule in Spain, interestingly, is if you've got five senior players fit, you play. Um, and they've had no games called off. And I think a similar situation in France. What the Premier League's done today... And I think this is Premier League only, so it wouldn't necessarily apply to the domestic cups. Um, what the Premier League said today is they're sticking by 13 plus one, but at least four of your reasons why you can't get to 13 plus one must be positive COVID cases. So if you can get to 13 plus one, so if, sorry, if you only got 12 outfield players and one goalkeeper, but only two of the players you're missing are out with COVID, you play. Presumably, if you've got six outfield players and a goalkeeper, but only two of them are, are missing through COVID, you play. Um, you need to both meet the 13 and 1 criteria and now meet the four positive COVID criteria in order to have a game called off. I think they did have to make a move because otherwise we were still going to be playing this season in July. Um, <laughs> and, and there's a World Cup in December. So, you know, we've got a lot of football to fit in. Uh, I think they did have to make a change. I think it does make sense to do it at this point where there's a natural break in the season. And we might come on to that in a second, Dan, because I know you've got thoughts. But but I think the timing makes sense. I think tweaking the rule does make sense. Um, I think, unfortunately, for the, for the best of intentions, they were trying to kind of deal with the difficulty of Omicron in a fair way. 
but they got themselves into a bit of a hole and this is, I think, the right point to try and dig themselves out of it. And just before Karen comes in, I just have to say that Burnley have only played five games. <laughs> so well, they've, they've only played five games since the start of the season, I think. It, That's it, what I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, they've also only won one of them. Um, <laughs> uh, they also didn't move from the edge of their own 18-yard box on Sunday, but there we are. They got a point, so it worked for them. Yeah, I saw that got mentioned in uh, this week's David Squires cartoon, actually, Paul. But uh, <laughs> anyway, you know, you you know, you've you've had a, had a really good or bad week if you make it into that. So uh, yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, I think well, well, well covered, really. I mean, I guess it's it's partly you know do have some sort of sympathy and that they're obviously having to make policy up sort of on the hoof um, in response to changing situation with with covid and and you know various guidelines and things like that so you know but but yeah equally and i guess are, are we allowed to reference i mean yes there's maybe the the sort of rules could have been a bit bit tighter and more defined to start with but are, are we are we allowed to talk about certain clubs that may not have behaved to the full moral code of standard of uh, you know in terms of when they might announce that they want a, a game calling off um not mentioning any clubs in particular that you know the clubs have a, a duty and that responsibility as well to not sort of uh, you know because when they're sort of citing you know injuries and internationals it's like well that well they happen all the time they happen before covid um yeah, I, so i think I, you know it did I, I start to get a bit ridiculous definitely i think i don't i don't think clubs did help themselves but i think you know and particularly with the Arsenal situation, they did not like what happened with the League Cup semi-final. They thought the first leg should have been played. They were quite bitter about it. They then came out of the, the rearranged first leg with four players going down with injury that night and thought, "Ha, huh, there's a precedent here. We're going to we're going to play the play the rule book here." Um, and because the the authorities had got themselves back themselves into this sort of corner. They put themselves in a difficult position. I would say in Arsenal's defence, albeit I don't think they should have had the um, North London derby called off, um, in their defence, the Premier League should, in my opinion, have called off the opening game of the season when Arsenal did have a COVID outbreak, a genuine COVID outbreak, Mm. that even on the day of the game, they didn't know which players were infected. And Ben White played the game with COVID that they only found out about later. And the Premier League refused to call off the game because it was a Premier League opener on a Friday night football with the eyes of the world on it. It's and live. I think, and it, and it's live. And 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 I think that there's a there was a bit of a feeling in the Premier League. I think that maybe Arsenal had sort of been slightly hard done to previously, and they kind of turned a bit of a blind eye to what was a, a bit of a sort of frivolous request for the for the Derby game to be off. Um, again, I I think. You're right that they're making up the rules on the hoof. And that's the problem because you end up with these inconsistencies of interpretation. Uh, And once you get to that point, you're always going to have a club who feels they've been hard done to. And once you get a club in that position, they are going to look for every, every sort of loophole they can in the rule book to get one back, as it were. And, And I think that definitely happened. With the with the postponement of the North London derby, yeah, no, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, I think um, you know because the other thing with that is, I mean, I, I suppose you could say Spurs have been in, been decent form under Conte, but you know Arsenal have been playing really well as well. So it's not like you were 
you'd think you wouldn't want to like necessarily hide from the fixture, if you know what I mean, because actually, you know, Arsenal would have had a decent chance of, you know, potentially winning the game as well. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a albeit, funny one. albeit probably probably not with the team you'd have had to put out on the day. Yeah, I mean, if you're that sort of taken down with with players, then yeah, obviously that would would have the impact. I mean, Arsenal legitimately didn't have enough players. They legitimately yeah. didn't have enough senior players. The problem was only two of them had got COVID. Mm. The rest of them were injury. You know, they got four injuries at, at Anfield on the Thursday night. Now, you might also say, why the sodding hell are you playing League Cup semi-finals on a Thursday night, you plebs? Play it on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And you might not have teams down to the bare bones on a Sunday in quite the same way. <laughs> but, you know, they picked up picked up four injuries that, that Thursday night and clearly thought, you know, we're going to exploit this loophole to the full here. And, and I, 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 you know, I... Not as an Arsenal fan saying they weren't wrong to do it. I think they were wrong to do it. But I also understand from the club's perspective why they thought, at the moment, this this rule seems to only be working against us and not for us. So let's have a go at making it work for us. Yeah. 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 And, and it's, it's difficult to argue against that, to be perfectly honest. What I will say is I think that our theory before... Um, all that happened... And I, I remember mentioning to you and you, you said... Paul, you know, that's a really good point. What, what happens if Arsenal get a COVID outbreak, which is what happened in between the two Carlin Cup games? Um, yeah. And, and so it came to pass. Um, yeah, and they, they were lucky in the end. I think Arsenal's COVID outbreak ended up at sort of two players. They were missing a few staff as well, but ended up at only, I think, two players. Um, what would have happened if they got to the point where Arsenal genuinely had coming out of that weekend that the Spurs game had been off they'd have four or five or six in the run up to that Liverpool game what were they going to do then um so yeah uh not a particularly well handled situation I have sympathy and Khan's right to have sympathy because it, it isn't easy trying to manage your way through this scenario and balance trying to get the fixtures in trying to complete the season trying to be fair to clubs um trying to you know put the health of players above other things. It, it's really, really difficult, the balancing act that the powers that be have got. Um, I'm just not completely persuaded they've always got it right. No, me neither. Um, if we move on from this podcast's favourite topic of COVID to um, the change to the loan rules, um, something that you have kind of have led on, Paul, something that you've had um problem with for a while, basically, or as I, I know it, that stop Manchester City and Chelsea hoovering up all of the under-18s rule. Yeah, I, I, I do think there's been a problem for a while, and to be honest, Dan, I, I haven't had a chance to read fully into, into what the changes are, but I, I have said for a while I think it's a problem. I think you can't allow the big clubs... The, the, the really rich clubs to just use the stockpiling of players and the loan system as a way of um, filling up their transfer coffers because that's the way Chelsea use it. Let's let's make no bones about it. They buy kids from all around Europe for one and two million quid when they're 17, 18, and that's crazy money to the clubs that, that are selling them. And then they keep them in their academy until they're 20, and then they loan them out for a year and they have a really good year out on loan at Vitesse Arnhem or whichever one of Chelsea's other feeder um, clubs, pop, you know, partner clubs, I think they officially call them affiliates, which, yeah, whichever one of Chelsea's affiliates, they, they park them out for a year. People watch that player play and go, oh, he's a good player. And suddenly he's worth 16, 17, 18 million. And in some, some cases, even more than that. And I, I like, 
the loan system should be a, a genuine, legitimate way of clubs getting young kids in their academy who they think can make it through to their first team, that first step on the ladder. It shouldn't be an opportunity for you to buy young kids in and then put them out in the shop window to increase their value so that you can sell them and then spend that money on buying a £100 million striker from Inter Milan. As, as a completely random example, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, it'll be, you know, also be, obviously they've done it, you know, we've spoke about the, the balance of power between the authorities and the clubs. And obviously this is definitely one designed to sort of, you know, supposedly curb the behavior of, you know, the, the, the big clubs and the the richer clubs. Um, so it's not exactly a, a sledgehammer ruling, is it? Because they've obviously had to do it in a way that won't irk them too much because we know what happens when when the big clubs get get irked as we've seen um last year but so it's sort of it's i'm just having a, a, a quick look while i've been speaking so it, it's sort of staggered so from this summer it's it's a maximum of eight and then the year after a maximum of seven and then the one after a maximum of six so i, I don't know if the, the you know I, I imagine that was probably all i, I do wonder how much the, the clubs have sight of this before they kind of publish these things um i don't know if they sort of you know co-create them or, or whatever i'm not sure but I, I don't imagine that'll have you know too many um drastic impacts at least in in the short term but we'll, we'll we'll wait and see whether the we see the behavior starting to change or not as a result of coming there, in this summer isn't there still an age point on it though isn't it doesn't it kick in at like 21 and i think uh, again i've not i've not had time to fully read into the rules but i think that the the limits uh, you know kind of kick in at 21 and while i see that so it means you can't keep loaning kids out you can't loan tammy abraham out seven times or whatever i i still think there's a bit of a problem with with the 19 20 21 year olds and and i might be tempted to say you can only be loaned out for a maximum of 12 months between the age of 18 and 20 or, or 18 and 21 because um, it, it does just stop pl- clubs using them, using the loan system, not as a development stage in the player's career, but as a shop window for them to sell. And, and that's the bit that I find uncomfortable with the current arrangement. Yeah, so you're, you're absolutely right. So players aged 21 and younger and club-trained players will be exempt from these limitations. So there you go. So I'm okay with the club. the club-trained players. I mean, again, it depends how you define that. And I know on the homegrown rules, it can be defined slightly oddly. And suddenly Vito Manone is a is a homegrown player for Arsenal. <laughs> and, you know, that's clearly not the case. Uh, he's very Italian. Um, you know, but I, but I think in principle, I agree with that. I agree that it shouldn't apply to the kid who's been in your academy from 14 years of age. That's not what we've got the problem with. What we've got the problem with is the stockpiling of young players that have been plucked from all around Europe and are not then getting the opportunity to, you know, well, let, trying to give an example, imagine a young Polish centre forward now who was bought at 17 or 18 by Chelsea and stuck in their academy for two years, three years, loaned out a couple of times, and then his values increased and he's sold on. Isn't that young strike, Polish striker better taking the, the Robert Lewandowski route 
of having the step up to a bigger Polish club, then having the step up to Borussia Dortmund, then going on to Bayern Munich, where he's actually owned by each of those clubs along the road and develops his career organically rather than just playing on loan for teams he doesn't really have any affiliation with and then suddenly he gets sold on to, you know, a second-level European club, an Ajax or a... Uh, Roma or whoever it might be for, for 20 million quid. I just, you know, I, even Crystal Palace, I don't know how much Palace have paid for the centre-half because I think they've bought him, haven't they, the centre-half at Palace or is he still only on loan? No, they, um, they, they bought him. They bought him and, and they paid good money for him. Yep. And, uh, you know, is that right? And I, and I think it's the stockpiling that I worry about. So I, I'm kind of okay with there being an exception for the kid who's been at Chelsea since 12 years old. That that shouldn't be a problem. Um, and actually, ironically, when you look at the kids who have made it into the Chelsea first team, and we're talking Mason Mount and Rhys James and Callum Hudson-Odoi and, and to an extent Tammy Abraham, although I know he's fallen out of favour again now, a lot of them do fit that bill. Of they've, they've been in Chelsea's academy for years and mm. Chelsea should be congratulated heartily for the the job they've done developing those players when it's you know Anders Christensen and he was one of the kids they signed as a as a young teenager that's where I find it a bit more difficult all I can think of is that this is going to be really difficult for the football manager development team to code because um, that's that's certainly my strategy on football manager is buy, buy all the bright teenagers and loan them out and then get them back when they're good and sell them. Yeah, you know, it's my strategy on football manager as well because that that is the loophole that the that the regulators have caught. It's again a, a little bit like Arsenal and the exploiting the COVID loophole. I don't blame Chelsea for doing it. <laughs> well, I, it's not Chelsea's fault. The rules are stupid uh, and allow them to get away with it. Um, I do think it's a step in the right direction, even if it doesn't sound as though it's gone as far as I would have liked. Well, I'm comfortable blaming Manchester City if you are. Um, if we kind of like one one topic that I've badly wanted to bring up um, is why we're having a break at the moment. I, I know why we're supposed to be, but should we not have reconsidered that and gone, you know what, with all these postponements we've got in place, let's just crack on and get this other, let's get some game played in this two-week gap because, like, you know, you've, you've got Burnley, we've, we're joking, they've got 15 games in hand on, on teams around them. You know, like, what, why, why aren't we playing? Let's, let's just be flexible and just get games on. I, I imagine it's partly because at the point where it got to a, so this sort of critical mass of games not played, it's probably too soon to the break to then say to the clubs, oh, by the way, we're not giving you a break, we want you playing, because I guess they, they've made, either individual players have made plans or the clubs have made plans, you know, however it's organised. I think, you know, each club does things slightly differently, but I'm, I'm guessing if, if they'd come in at, you know, two or three weeks ago even and said, oh, by the way, you can't have it because there's now you know, 20-odd unplayed games. I, I think it's probably just a timing thing that it is just too soon. Um, it's probably why. Um, but the, the other angle as well, though, is, you know, is, is there a sort of player welfare element to it as well, which is supposedly the reason we have the break to avoid burnout and things like that. And I know some players have spoken about that um, recently as well. So I, I think there's maybe a, does it send the wrong message um, if we say, oh, actually, there's loads of games need playing, so actually don't have a break. 
um, and uh, you know, and come back and, and play these games because we've, we've created the situation. So I think it would have just opened potentially multiple cans of worms if they tried to, to sort of row back on it, which I think is probably why it's it's gone ahead as as planned. But it's just unfortunate timing that yeah, you look at the fixture list and there's a there's just that huge <laughs> pile of unplayed games at the top. Um, some of which I think are starting. I've seen a couple of alerts this afternoon. I think some of some are starting to be plotted in the calendar now. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just a awkward timing with all the um, you know with all the COVID postponements. I think. Yeah, I think uh, there'll be a few clubs having to cancel their warm weather warm weather training trips to Dubai as well, wouldn't they? Which they they won't be too keen on. Um, <laughs> Dan, so uh, there's uh, there's that to consider as well. I mean, it does it does feel slightly silly to me to be having a break at, at this point. I take Khan's uh, point, actually, though, that the, especially those clubs where there have been a lot of COVID cases, it has led to um, to some players playing like seven, eight games nonstop over the festive period and into January. And it is a lot of football. And if we are trying to keep players fit for what is still a very busy footballing calendar in 2022 with, you know, World Cups and whatever at the end of the year, I, I see the sense in it. Uh whether I think it's the right thing to do, given the scenario we're in, I don't know. How easy would it have been to reschedule the games? Because, you know, it's okay saying we've got a pile of fixtures that are backlogged. But if every fixture that's backlogged includes Burnley, uh, <laughs> you, you can only rearrange one of those games, right, in in that period. And, um, you know, I think Burnley, have, uh, as far as sort of six games behind some teams, um Equally, you, you, the likes of Watford and Everton have got plenty of games still to play as well, and Tottenham and Leicester. And there's, there are other teams. Man City have played 23. West Ham have played 23. Uh, Brentford have played 23. It, it, it's just so sort of sporadic. And I don't know how many of them games it would have been easy, even if you've played next weekend. How many clubs would you have been able to, to schedule because of who the games are against? And I think then it becomes, have you potentially given an unfair advantage to Chelsea and Man City and West Ham, who do get a winter break because they're up up to date pretty much with their fixtures, but you've given a disadvantage to, to Tottenham and to Leicester and to Burnley, who are miles behind with their fixtures and so have got loads of games to catch up on. Yeah, but... Some very considered points there. Like, don't, don't get me wrong, I am a massive advocate of the winter break. Huge, huge fan of it. I don't like when it is. I want it like over Christmas because I hate going watching football at Christmas. But I am a big fan of the break itself. You know, I, I do want it, and I've argued for it for years. Um, but I, I just think that with where we are this year, just push it back and say, well, player welfare is not as big a problem because you've all been off. One one game or another because of COVID. Like most teams have had a break, some haven't. I appreciate that. There's there's no right answer to help that 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 quandary out, unfortunately. But um, yeah, that's that's my take on it. More, and it's not often you'll catch me saying play more football. <laughs> um, I was going to say we have to be on message, Dan. Remember, we uh, we have to go for the too much the too much football angle. Yeah, um, all of the football, all of the time. <laughs> But yeah, I, I do think, I think really, I, I, I think it is the timing more than anything. I think if the if the games had piled up in October and November instead of 
you know, mostly December and, and a bit of Jan, then they might have said, all right, we can give a bit more notice to change the timing of the break to get some games played now and maybe they'd have a you know maybe they'd move it or or scrap it but i think it i think it's more that they've sort of piled up literally just before the break kicks in and i think it is i think it's probably just the timing and then that that being disruptive to you know plans made and clubs kicking off and things like that i suspect it's mostly to do with that because we know the authorities don't care about player welfare let's let's be honest no they care about getting the football on the television (laughs) Exactly. As much of it as possible. Um, next topic I wanted to talk about. Um, Can you want you 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 raised that you wanted to talk about um, a Swiss Arsenal midfielder who <laughs> remain many to remain nameless. I, I wanted to laugh at him. I didn't want to to necessarily talk about him too much. But uh, no, I mean I, I I I I'm not close to the detail on this. I might I might and I don't know if, if, if given he's an Arsenal player, Paul. If you, I mean I I don't know if we're where we stand in terms of naming him in relation to certain uh, allegations. So, um, yeah. Well, I, I, I think it is relatively out there now that the, the allegation regarding um, uh, strange betting patterns on a yellow card uh, relate to Granite Xhaka and they relate to the game at Leeds just before Christmas. Um, a game in which, if you remember, with Arsenal 4-0 up, he made pretty ridiculous crazy challenge over by the touchline sort of early midway through the second half um that went to VAR to see if it was a red card and VAR didn't decide it was worthy of a red card and of course VAR is unable to say but it should be a yellow that's not the way VAR works so we didn't get booked for that and then he got booked a few minutes later for time wasting which does sort of lend some credence to the pattern the idea that he was maybe you know Maybe he was trying to get booked. Mm. And anyway, there seems to be some some strange betting patterns that have gone on around it. Um, it's all subject to a, an investigation. Um, the FA are investigating. Uh, but, I, I mean, on the flip side, you would have to say if you're a betting man, having money on Xhaka to get a yellow card at any time is, <laughs> is not the silliest bet in the world. <laughs> but it, it does appear that there was a bit of a pile on it at, at that moment. Um in in that particular game, which which is interesting, given both that he made that challenge, which there was quite a lot. If you remember back to that time, there was quite a lot of should he been should he actually have been sent off by VAR for that tackle? Um, there was quite a lot of debate about that, uh, and given that he made that tackle and not kind of got a card, and then and then to later get booked for time wasting. Um, yeah, it. it it does worth bear watching, um, certainly. Uh, obviously, if there is any any proof to any of these allegations and anything's proven, he's looking at a pretty long suspension, I would think. Uh, generally, any any footballer found to be in, in breach of sort of match-fixing match regulations mm. is, is hit quite firmly. Um, but we will wait and see what the FA makes of it. it, it it's right that if it's been brought to their attention, they investigate, and we'll, we'll just have to see what the outcome is. Of course, the, the tackle he made at Leeds wasn't as ridiculous as the tackle he made at Anfield a few weeks ago. I mean, he just he does it so often. Like he's thick you know, as two shots. He man. is <laughs> thick as two short flanks. We we talk about you know we've talked about the the Man City game on New Year's Day, and I, I still don't think the penalty that was given against him was was sufficiently clear and obvious that it was an overturnable decision. But again, it was a stupid challenge to make in the first place. He is absolutely dim. 
Um, I don't know if that's actionable, but he is dim. Uh, and and yeah, again, I don't. I have no idea what he was doing at Liverpool. And his defence, which was well, if I don't if I don't make that challenge, Liverpool score, and then everyone says, why doesn't he care more? Well, just make a better challenge then. Like there aren't two options. The options in that moment are not let him score or sort of scissor kick him. That, that's not the way it works. Um, yeah, the. I don't know. It rocks for brains, as Big Ron would have said. As as my my, my wonderful dad used to say, if, and one of my favourite sayings: "If you shone a torch in his ears, his eyes would light up." <laughs> um, and that's a very apt to Granite Shaka, who uh, I don't know how many more chances he can have at Arsenal. Just why why I've got you, Paul, and um. It's a topic that comes. Well, up. he's got a few, Dan, because he's just signed a new contract in the <laughs> at the start of the season, so he'll be around for a while yet. I would have thought. <laughs> well, Our chance to move him on was last summer. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know. Newcastle, maybe. Well, possibly. Well, I did. I did see <laughs> um, you, you linked to a midfield, and it it did say as a replacement for for Jacka. So may, maybe uh, they they are still trying to to shift him on somewhere. Mm. Or maybe they just mean the subs, you know, the subs bench, or training with the kids for a year or two <laughs> to wind down his contract. Um, why you've got you, Paul? It's not been a great couple of weeks for Arsenal in the context of what is actually a pretty good season. D- discipline again. What 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 is going on with Arsenal's discipline? There seems to be a red card every week. Well, I mean, half of Mijaka. That's part of the problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I I think they have this tendency when. Um, when games start to get away from them to panic and, and to make rash decisions. Uh, and that's definitely part of it. Um, I think I think generally it's just a, a few of the things that we've seen in the last few weeks, a little bit of inexperience. Uh, the game management in the game against Manchester City when they're 1-0 up and playing really, really well. Uh, clearly disappointing. Um, I thought the... The you know the Xhaka sending off in the in the first leg at Anfield, which was just completely needless. I actually think the reaction to Liverpool scoring last week in the second leg of the semi-final, because I thought Arsenal played well for the first twenty minutes, and Liverpool yep. scored a little bit against the run of the play. Yeah, and then Arsenal just packed up, just packed up and went home at that point, and and, and never really found any kind of response at all. Um, in the game and then you go to this weekend and look against a Burnley team that have come to defend with their lives and play for a point you could tell Arsenal were lacking that I mean they're lacking a bit of a cutting edge up front we've known that all season Uh, Lacazette works his socks off but he doesn't score goals Um, and I think some of the inexperience of those players around him just showed they got a bit frustrated it's where maybe you do need a few older heads, wiser heads to kind of say, don't worry, just keep playing, we'll score here. And uh, and the, like the last 20 minutes, there was actually a stat put up on during the game. I think we've scored the second fewest in the last 15 minutes of games this season. And I think there is something to that point of uh, that little bit of inexperience of when it's not going for them, that just keep playing, just keep playing, it'll come, it'll come. You know, don't get away from your plan, just keep doing it, you'll find the opportunity. I think that's still lacking a little bit, particularly in that forward three just behind the striker that you've got Smith Rowe and, and Odegaard and Saka and, and Martinelli playing those positions who are all are all kids really. Um 
yeah, so a frustrating little little period. They'll need to get back on the horse quickly after the uh, after the break. Try and take advantage of some of these games in hand, and you know it's been mixed fortunes for teams around them. I mean, the Spurs have won a couple of games that I don't think they've had any right to win at Watford and at, and at Leicester. Um, you know, United have, have dropped some points, but then you know have picked up a good result, and uh, West Ham seem to just be wobbling a little bit as well. So that that race, if you want to call it that, for fourth is is very interesting, and obviously Chelsea. Good result at the weekend, um, you know, exception as an exception, but they've been dragged into it a little bit. Yeah, that that Leicester and Tottenham game was very entertaining, but it was absolutely ridiculous um, the way that finished. Um, yeah, Leicester killed themselves there. Yeah, yeah, and um, they did the same again against Brighton. Um, apparently, um, really struggling at the moment, Leicester to. Get a run of form together, and the the top four is long gone for them now. Um, something that I have entertained you both with recently, the my running commentary on the the referee at the Afcon a couple of weeks ago when he blew for full time twice. Um, have you been watching much of the tournament? What what do you think think of it so far? I've only seen very very limited snippets, Dan. If I'm completely honest with you. Um, I I do think when I watch the AFCON these days that I, I worry a little bit that African football has become too European in its influence. Um, and there will be people who, who, who watch a lot more African football than me and, and certainly international football uh, of the African nations. And, and you know, I, I'm perfectly willing to be told that I'm completely wrong on this. But I, I wonder a little bit if they've lost some of the the natural flair that we used to associate with African teams of, of that sort of slight unpredictability. You think back to the Cameroon side in 1990. Now, I know they could kick you as well. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> They've never been scared of a challenge, but there was a bit of a, a bit of flair, a bit of unpredictability with them. I think of that um, Senegal team that shocked France in 2002 and had the Al-Haji Diouf and, 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 you know, Salif Jao and one or two others in, in that side who... <laughs> You know, you won't necessarily have good memories of them, but who were unpredictable, who who were kind of players who you wouldn't exactly say you could hang your hat on them, but when they were on their day, they could play. Um, and I think I look at the the African sides now, and they look quite functional to me. They look as though they play in a very sort of 1990s European way, with two banks of four and a bit functional. And um, I'd like to see a really exciting team come out of this Acon that, that you look at and think I'd love to watch them in the World Cup later this year. And uh, and I haven't seen one so far, but I, I, you know, I do qualify that with I haven't watched all the games by any means. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the, we, were, we were chatting just before we started re- recording this and the, the penalty shootout. Um, was the, was the first footage I've I've seen of it apart from the odd clip on on Twitter and what Dan shared and his and his running commentary on some, some of the uh, the more sort of comedic uh, elements of it. I mean, like the fact that I, I thought that um, Egypt were through to the final tells you how closely I've been following it because <laughs> it's a, it was a round of sixteen game as Dan pointed out to me. So um, yeah, I think I might might leave my input there because. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah. I, suppose, I suppose I throw the question back to you then, Dan, because you've probably watched the most of it of the three of us. Um, is my sort of 
good sense from the games I've watched there, or do you think there are some, you know, exciting, attacking, uh, sort of open and free-flowing African teams out there? It's been a really dull tournament. Um, mm. That that was my that was my gut instinct as well. From yeah, what I've seen. I, I mean, like, it's a well-known. Fact. I'm not going to lie. I'm not a big fan of of the Afcon just because of the inconvenience it causes to the full season. But it, it it's normally you know like there's something about it. It's like entertaining one way or another. Genuinely, the most entertainment I've had was that game that where the referee blew five minutes earlier because it was just hilarious. The the only teams that have caught my eyes. My eye really is is the Comoros Islands, and that's because they had this like that game against Cameroon the other the other day, uh, where they had a left back in goal and only lost two one, scored a, a free kick where you can maybe question the goalkeeper's movements of his feet, but the the way he hit the ball was amazing. Um, yeah, it's been an unremittingly dull tournament, and I've watched most of it because. I've been stuck in bed after after kidney surgery, so it's not. I, it's not like I'm watching snippets of it. I've been watching whole games, and it's just passed me by. Not a lot has happened. There's not a lot to report. Uh, but did I mention the referee who blew five minutes early? Yeah, you did. I mean, I I do think it it, it might be a bit of a a bit of a kind of uh, decision point, really, African football. I think because they they obviously wanted to professionalize and wanted to bring those European coaches in and have a bit more of that European influence. And and I think, great. I just wonder if they've got to the point now where it's maybe gone a bit too far and whether they've lost a bit of that sort of joyfulness that, that you thought of when you thought of African teams coming to the world cup. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't mention the Nigeria team in 94, the, the, what they call the super Eagles, but, but they were another example that you, you could have gone there. They, they lit up that 1994 World Cup, which wasn't the greatest World Cup in, in living memory. But, you, you know, again, you, you think about that team and you think about that great goal that they scored, you know, on the counter-attack with the players, everyone running forward and there'd be no sort of structure, but just run and, 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 and you know, go towards goal. See and what I happens. Think, yeah, I, I, I worry that a little bit about real kind of, yeah, joyfulness would be the word, maybe more than flair. They used to play football with a real joyful expression. And uh, I worry that they've kind of become slightly sort of Nordic, almost. They're almost like watching Sweden, which is never a good thing. <laughs> good if you want a nice one-all draw, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, and, and you know. <laughs> Look, obviously, it's the World Cup coming up this year, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, in due course. As we were saying, actually, before we came on and uh, started recording tonight, that there's some good games in the playoff uh, round for, for African qualification. So some of the big nations will, will face off for a place in the World Cup. And I think Egypt play Senegal, um, Ghana play Nigeria. So only one of, of those two will make it as well. Uh, they may be maybe decent games to, to kind of keep an eye on, but I'd really hope that we get an African team that comes to the World Cup um, and gives it a real go, because I think you probably have to go back to Ghana, don't you, in, in 2010 uh, for the last one that's really come and, and made an impact in a tournament. And um, Yeah, I, I think it's about time that we kind of did get, get back to that uh, that sense that the African teams were improving and were, and were sort of balancing that European influence with the sort of joyfulness that we always associated with them and the freedom that they always played with. 
uh, and was still, of course, working for Asamoah uh, Gian's penalty to return to orbit. <laughs> yeah, what an awful moment for yeah. old Asamoah. Uh, I mean, there he was, chance to put an African team in the semi-final of the World Cup for the first time ever in the first ever, uh, in the first World Cup in Africa ever, and uh, yeah, his, his penalty still going. I just, I just remember Luis Suarez celebrating as he was being dragged down. The yeah. By the well, the, the one thing no one could ever say about Luis Suarez as a personality was classy. Um, well, he, yeah, he certainly wasn't there, uh, and and yeah, he he celebrated. Interestingly, Uruguay. While we're on Luis Suarez, and I know I'm changing the topic completely, Uruguay look like they're not going to qualify. The uh, inaugural winners. Of the World Cup. winners, yeah, and and they had a little bit of a dry spell, didn't they? Between they didn't qualify for '94, they didn't qualify for '98. I don't think uh, they didn't qualify for '02. I think they had a little dry spell, but then have been pretty regular for the last four or five tournaments, and and at the moment they're languishing. I think you know Brazil and Argentina are pretty much guaranteed, and it looks like Ecuador are, are going to make it. But that that fourth spot is very much up for grabs, of course. When and when you think of it, you know they, they've had that run of tournaments in a row, and that's when you got Luis Suarez. Uh, yeah, and they've they've had a good generation of players, and the Suarez and Cavani in particular. You know, Rakoba maybe just a little bit before that. So they had a good generation of players. Don't don't get me wrong, but um, and and Uruguay is a tiny country, so you're not going to produce a Luis Suarez and an Edison Cavani every generation. Um, you can you're going to have little barren spells, but it looks like maybe they've hit theirs. You might you might produce a Sebastian Coates though. <laughs> that's not a good thing. No, that's not a good thing. <laughs> you're right. Um, I, I think that kind of uh, covers it. But what I was going to say, sorry, before like, speaking of, of, of that incident, um, you know, like, if I'm the goalkeeper and Luis Suarez doesn't handball, I am going to knock him out in the dressing room afterwards. Oh, no, we did the right thing hand, handling the ball, definitely. Um, yeah. He did the right thing cheating in that scenario. But uh, it was uh, the celebration... <laughs> Watching the penalty get missed was the bit I think that everyone stuck in their throat a little bit. Um, and again, I understand why he did it, but maybe go and do that in the dressing room. Maybe don't do that in full public view. I'm going to be honest, I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> and um, that was before we signed for Liverpool as well. I just thought that just, that whole thing was, I mean, it was sad for, uh, for, 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 for Garner, obviously, but. Uh, I thought it was hilarious. I'm not going to lie. Uh, and I, I, again, if if I'm, I'm the goalkeeper and my my goalkeeper, my player on the line doesn't do that, I, I'm going to get stuck into the map of the game. Give me a chance to save the penalty. Or well, you didn't need to save Aston well, Jan's penalty. Well, well, it's either, either let me save the penalty or hope that he sends it halfway to the horsehead nebula, which he, as it turns out, he did. So. Uh, yeah, there we go. Before I get stuck into uh, we start a World Cup podcast here, um, I think that covers our agenda uh, by and large. Is there anything else that you uh, wanted to bring up? We've got a, a very detailed discussion this evening. No, I think that's a pretty pretty well covered the uh, the current you know footballing footballing landscape. I reckon, Dan. Um, yeah, nothing else from me. No, nothing else from me this week, Dan. All right, well, that, that has us uh, about done. Then we'll leave you with the image of Luis Suarez doing a jig on the touchline. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I'll stop laughing eventually. Um, and I'm not sure when we'll do our next show um, because, uh, as I've already mentioned, there's a break. <laughs> there's not going to be a lot to talk about for the next couple of weeks. Um, unless you want to do an AFCON special, gents. <laughs> I think, well, I think I, based on the <laughs> amount of minutes we've watched yeah. between me and Paul, perhaps, perhaps not. But uh... I've watched about three games and Khan's watched about three minutes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Let me know when there's a penalty shootout on. I'll tune in. <laughs> <laughs> Which I suppose now we're in the knockout rounds. There, there might be a few. Um, but uh, yeah, we did say I think Equatorial Guinea might have just kicked off. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll start watching a bit of that this evening. See if I can get into the the business it's, end um, of the tournament. It's nil nil at half time. The the titans of Equatorial Guinea against the immovable force of Malawi. Right, uh, maybe I'll just get Mali. my tea on instead. Mali, Mali, <laughs> Ma- yeah, yeah, Mali. Um, uh, you, you, you do the analysis, Dan. I'll do the pronunciations. <laughs> well, that's just because I'm from St. Helens. That's nothing to do with anything else <laughs> other than the fact I'm from St. Helens. So. Yeah, there we go. Um, so I, I don't think we'll have a show next week. It'll probably be the uh, the week after the the return of the, uh, the well, it's the FA Cup actually. It's not even the Premier League. We have to, to fit another knockout competition in as well. Um, so yeah, oh, Arsenal will be able to have an extra long break then. Well, uh, we well, can spend a month in Dubai. Great. <laughs> <laughs> well, me, me and Cam were talking about this because there's. Um, Burnley, I think against I think Watford has been scheduled for the, the FA Cup weekend um, because they're both out of the FA Cup um, and there's a lot of games to fill in. So I think they're playing on the Friday. They may be playing on the Friday or the Saturday. So according to this, Arsenal's next Premier League game is on the 10th of February, which is midweek. That's yes, it's a whole night, isn't it? Yeah, that's quite a gap, isn't it? Mm. Even even now. Too, right. it's, it's almost too much of a gap in the middle of the season, really. But as an advocate of a of a winter break, I've really got to own it, to be honest. So <laughs> there we go. Uh, so thank you all for listening. It's been a, a few weeks since our last show, so thanks for coming back. You can catch us on Spotify, Podbean, iTunes, um, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. So thank you all very much for listening. Paul, Khan, a pleasure as always. And we'll catch you again after a while.